You are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths and misinformation taught to you in school and on corporate media. I'm your host, Isha, and today we have our co-host, Brandon, with us. On today's show, we will be talking about the People's Temple, Jonestown, and the survivors of Jonestown with Fielding McGee. Thank you so much for joining us, Fielding. Can you tell us a little bit about your work and what you do? Yes, my wife, Rebecca Moore, and I are the co-founders of the Jonestown Institute and editors and managers of the Jonestown website, which is at jonestown.sdsu.edu. I suggest everyone go there because it's so rich with first-person information, and it's not just focused on one person. It's focused on everyone. That's what I love about it. Well, thank you, although you just stole my line. (laughs) (laughs) Basically, what we try to do is to humanize the people who died in Jonestown, Guyana on November 18th, 1978. We try to give all the people their names, uh, as much biographical data about them as we can, and also photographs whenever possible. And even just to name them, even that was sort of a process of trying to figure out exactly who died. And part of that is to show that the people who died in Jonestown were human beings, that they had faces and histories and families. And over the years, one of the benefits of that, or one of the uh, results of that, has been a lot of the families who once were ashamed or stigmatized by the deaths have come forward to reclaim their family members. And that's always really wonderful when that happens. A second purpose is to really give the survivor community a forum where they can go and express their own beliefs their own views as to what happened in Jonestown and People's Temple. Can we back up a little? Because we have a lot of young people, and I'm sure most of them don't know. So can you kind of quickly mention what is Jonestown and what happened there? Jonestown is sort of a single word which captures the, tries to capture the events of November 18th, 1978. And on that day, uh, 918 people died in a small South American country named Guyana. Most of the people who died were members of a religious uh, slash utopian commune by the name of Jonestown, which was established by a group called People's Temple. People's Temple was led by a preacher named Jim Jones at its height. People's Temple, when it was still in California, had about 5,000 members, although probably 20,000 people had participated in People's Temple activities over the years. The group immigrated to Guyana in 1977. There were about 1,000 people in this jungle community, which which was about 150 miles away from the capital city of Georgetown. There were stories that there were problems within the community and they were investigated by a U.S. congressman named Leo Ryan. Leo Ryan went there in mid-November 1978. He had kind of a complicated visit while he was there. On his way back to Georgetown at an airstrip, jungle airstrip about six miles from the community, 
He was shot. He was assassinated by members of People's Temple. There were four other people in the Congressional Party who died. And about the same time that that was happening, Jim Jones, the leader of People's Temple and or Jonestown, decided that the time had come for the community members to themselves die. And so there were 909 people who died in Jonestown itself. There were four other members of the group who died in the capital city of Georgetown, where the temple had sort of an administrative headquarters. Temple was integrated, and Mm -hmm. also how influential it was in local San Francisco politics. Um, Do you want to get Uh, into that? Of course. So um, People's Temple started off as uh, as a church in Indianapolis, Indiana, in the mid 1950s. It was founded by Jim Jones, and one of the reasons that he founded it on his own was that he, that he felt that the churches of Indianapolis were segregated, uh, which in fact they were, and so he opened People's Temple as one uh, means of integrating the church community within that city. And the church ended up having, was one of the few churches in Indiana that had the type of uh, integration that uh, that the civil rights movement, which was just blossoming at the time, was trying to have. In other words, that black and white were standing together. In 1965, in part with pressure uh, to, to leave because of a number of reasons in Indianapolis, but he in, ended up taking the church out to California. He started off in a small community about 90 miles north of San Francisco, called Redwood Valley, near the town of Ukiah. And, uh, but really, the, his ministry didn't really flourish until he expanded the temple into two other places, both in San Francisco and Los Angeles. And in San Francisco, the church was in a predominantly black area of town called the Fillmore. The membership of the church uh, when it flourished in both San Francisco and Los Angeles, was about 90% black and 10% white, which was a real increase from both its Indianapolis days and its Redwood Valley days. The church provided a lot of services for its members. It did a lot of things that the other black churches in San Francisco said they wanted to do. Jim Jones was actually doing it. And so Jim Jones was criticized by black churches in San Francisco. Uh, if you were a member of People's Temple, there were just all sorts of benefits that accrued to you. For example, if you were having problems with the welfare department, um, either state or local, somebody from People's Temple would go down to the welfare office with you. If you were having problems with the police or if one of your relatives had been arrested, it would be one of the People's Temple lawyers who would be standing next to you in court the next day, and, um, and medical services as well. So whereas a lot of the other churches did speak of the services that would come to them in the by and by, as Jim Jones described it, within the temple itself, you got the services on the spot. And so the church, the church became really a, a multifaceted organization when and in, in kind of considering what People's Temple was, if, you, if, if anyone were to ask you, 
do you consider it a political organization? Do you consider it a religious organization? Do you consider it a social welfare organization? Do you consider it a utopian organization? The answer really is yes. Uh, like, during that time, didn't President Carter's wife come and visit the, t- the temple, like, in 1975 or something? People's Temple made an effort to ally itself with the political establishments of Washington, D.C., California, and San Francisco. And they were successful, really, on a number of levels. When Walter Mondale, who was then uh, vice presidential candidate, came to San Francisco, it was Jim Jones who met Mondale and went around San Francisco with him. Uh, He did speak on the phone a couple of times with Rosalind Carter. The conversations were taped and by the temple and are available through the website, actually. Uh, You can hear Rosalind Carter talk with Jim Jones. Jim also made sure that he was tight with the governor of California, and especially the lieutenant governor of California, a man named Mervyn Dimely, who was a good, who became good personal friends with Jim Jones, and who himself ended up traveling down at least once and probably twice to Jonestown um, after the temple migrated down there. He also was very influential in some San Francisco politics. According to the, his opposition, uh, he was the one who really put the mayor, George Moscone, over the top in the San Francisco election and was also good friends with Harvey Milk, the first gay city supervisor from San Francisco. And, um, of course, both of those men were assassinated about 10 days after Jim Jones uh, and people simple self-immolated in Guyana. One more thing. Um, there were a lot of foster children who were adopted by members of the temple, right? There, were, uh, there was a foster care program. There were a number of pe- people who were adopted by People's Temple, but, um, and there were allegations that there was uh, abuse of the foster care system. This is mainly, a lot of these allegations came up after the uh, deaths in Jonestown. But as it turned out, there, were, there was exactly one foster child who died in Jonestown. It seems like they started out to create a really positive community in Northern California. Were there any dark signals between 1970 and 77 when they moved to Guyana of like things going wrong under the surface? So, um, you know, People's Temple was a, in, in some ways a fairly closed institution. Even though they had church services on Sundays, and anybody could attend. There are a number of meetings during the week um, involving the the membership of People's Temple in which, you know, if you weren't a member of the temple itself, you weren't allowed in. In addition, there was a smaller group called the Planning Commission, valued between 70 and maybe 100 members. They were the people who made a lot of the um, decisions of the temple, sort of Jim Jones's board of directors. But, Ultimately, the authority rested with with Jim Jones himself. There were um, excesses of uh, of both of rhetoric and sometimes of discipline of the of temple members within the church. And depending upon who you talk to, whether how egregious it was, how 
uh, how dangerous it was really uh, depends upon the person's people that you talk to. And it really kind of shows how multifaceted People's Temple was. It was not a monolithic kind of organization. So just to give you one example, one of the abuses that happened within People's Temple at one point, there was a member of People's Temple who had been writing MASH notes to, um, to Jim Jones for a while. She had been writing, you know, essentially love letters to him. And, um, and even though Jones was married, he'd, he already had a couple of other partners along the way, but this woman was not one of them. And they decided that this woman needed to, to be taught a lesson. And the lesson that they, the way that they did this was that at the beginning of a planning commission meeting, they called her into the circle and had her stripped naked. And, and then they had her stand there for the entirety of the meeting, which lasted for several hours. Now, as a result of this, there were people who left after that night. No, it should be pointed out, no one got up and walked out on the spot. No one made a protest on the spot. But there are a lot of people, or excuse me, several people for whom that was the last straw. They said, this is an abuse of power. And they ended up leaving the next day. But there are also a number of people who, who were looking around saying, you know, this just feels really queasy. This really feels wrong. This isn't really what we signed up for. But no one else seems to be doing anything, so I guess it's okay. Right? So it kind of, and then there were not a number of people who said this woman kind of got what she deserved. So um, would this be considered abusive? Would this be considered red flags? I mean, I, I think probably that type of behavior is, but the, it, it also stopped this woman from uh, really, you know, being much of a, it, 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 it didn't even really teach her a lesson because she kind of continued. But, um, but it showed kind of how they did this, uh, responded to these kinds of pressures within the temple. What prompted the temple to move to Guyana? So there were a number of things that did prompt the People's Temple to move to Guyana in 1977. First of all, they had been talking about moving down there for a number of years. Um, they had wanted to establish their own colony People's Temple had talked about establishing their own colony in the South American country of Guyana for, uh, for a number of reasons. They wanted to, to essentially, they had given up on the United States. They thought that the United States was a racist country. They thought that it was going to be destroyed by a nuclear war. They thought they would be safer in a, a country like Guyana. And so, um, and Guyana had a few other things going for it uh, as a choice of refuge. One was that it was a majority black country. One was that it had a quasi-socialist government. And probably the most attractive thing about it was that it was an English-speaking country. And so they could, uh, one of the two countries, um, you know, south of the U.S. border with Mexico, where English was spoken. They had established this colony in 1974, and they were going to be moving people down bit by bit down to this colony over the years. The thing that precipitated the mass exodus was that in 1977, in August of 1977, a magazine called New West published an article 
that was highlighted interviews with seven people who had left the church, some, some of them claiming abuses of various types against them or that they witnessed, and, uh, and, and, and some of it just sort of dissatisfaction. In other words, it's allowing, it, it, just, it, it was a, a forum for the temple's critics. And Jim Jones was not very receptive to being criticized on anything. And at that point, with the uh, colony already somewhat established in Guyana, in Jonestown, but was only with fewer than 100 people living there, he ordered the mass immigration of about 1,000 people down to Guyana. And so uh, that was really the, um, that was sort of the precipitating Factor was this magazine article in New West Magazine. Do we know who provided um, initial funding, I guess, for the temple here before they moved to Guyana and, and after? So the temple collected uh, money through a, a number of different ways. They, uh, you know, they, they collected it as any church does through uh, donations and contributions of its members. There were uh, revenues that it obtained for various services that it provided to the state. For example, it did have a couple of uh, convalescent centers in Northern California, uh, up in Redwood Valley. They had a couple of senior residences they were, that they were collecting uh, money for providing services to that. They were collecting some money by offering foster care and uh, for children. A number of people, as they became more and more involved in the church, um, turned over their, uh, their salaries completely to the temple um, in exchange for housing, uh, you know, food and housing. In other words, they, they lived, as the temple members referred to it, as going communal. They were, they, all their needs were provided by the temple in exchange for turn, turning over their entire salaries. Plus, a number of people, as they joined, did turn over their previous assets. So there are a number of people who sold their properties and then um, and turned over the proceeds to People's Temple. So bit by bit, they did raise enough money to, to build this colony down there. And at the time of the deaths in Jonestown, I think the final figure was something like $6 million scattered in various accounts around the world. Uh, um, but before they moved to Guyana, I heard there was a scandal in regards to social security checks. Are you familiar with that? I am, and it, and it turned out to be uh, incorrect. Okay. Can you tell us what the scandal was and what, what is actually the truth? Well, yeah. I mean, there, there, were, there were allegations that there were people um, who were collecting social security um, who were not entitled to it is really what it comes down to. Oh, the same kind but, of, uh, okay, okay. Uh, kind of like the Ronald Reagan, uh, uh, okay, I got it. Yeah, yeah, and, and, for, and, and this is, a, but this is one of the kinds of pressures that was being leveled against People's Temple. Um, so in, uh, in, when they went down to Guyana in 1977, um, the Social Security Administration really at the kind of the uh, instigation or behest of some of the temple's critics uh, 
contacted the post office in San Francisco to say, would you let us know of any changes of address for people from San Francisco going down to Guyana? And the post office said, we'll do you one better. We'll take any mail that comes from the Social Security Administration to someone who has a change of address in Guyana, and we'll send you that check back. Well, that wasn't their prerogative. They, the people who had their, had their Social Security checks, it didn't matter that they were living in Guyana. They were still entitled to their Social Security checks. But um, because of these claims, the, the post office just decided to make it, th this decision on its own to send the checks back. There was also no notification of the people uh, to the people in Jonestown as to what had happened. So all of a sudden, this money started to dry up. And, you know, they were besides themselves because this was their kind of walking around money. This was several thousand dollars that came in each month that um, all of a sudden just disappeared. And they had to get their congressman to go to the Social Security Administration and say, what do you guys think you're doing? These guys are entitled to this money. Um, this was the kind of thing that sort of set up the charges afterwards that there was social security fraud. But there was an investigation that was done afterwards, and also we did one ourselves, and there was absolutely no social security fraud that was done by members of People's Temple, either in Guyana or in uh, California beforehand. Oh, okay. So in, from the media, we hear all these, mm -hmm. um, there were like all these problems with the T People's Temple before they went to Guyana. But a lot of it also seems to be the critiques kind of echo those that racial tension. So I was wondering what was okay. going on with the critique okay. and what is legitimate and what was not legitimate. Like that's the hardest okay. to sort out. Okay. So People's Temple was a was an integrated institution, especially in its pews. Uh, there, it was a majority black organization. There was uh, a, a number of people who joined People's Temple, joined it out of a sense of trying to establish racial justice. If you talk to most of the people who, who were members of People's Temple and who survived, they talked about um, the, their motivation to be part of a group that was promoting racial justice around the country and in the state of California, and they still feel that despite its failings, including obviously the deaths in Jonestown, that the temple itself had noble aspirations to bring racial equality to, to the United States and to California. There were also a number of actions that People's Temple took so that they weren't just talking the talk, they were walking the walk. There were numbers of demonstrations, both in Indianapolis and in California during the 1970s, which they protested racial injustice, in which they pushed back against some of the decisions made by both state and national decision makers, which they perceived as racist, and they really did consider itself a beacon of racial equality, at least that's what they were calling for. Within the organization itself, however, there were some problems. The leadership was majority white. 
it seemed that it was easier for white people to rise in the ranks of the People's Temple leadership over blacks. There were blacks in the leadership, but it seemed to be much harder fought for them to attain those levels. In 1973, there were eight young college students who left the temple. They wrote Jim Jones a letter before they left in which they decried what they perceived as racial favoritism towards whites in the leadership. And they kind of called him out on it. Um, they became known as the Eight Revolutionaries. And of course, Jim Jones just started to blast them for, for a long time and considered them traitors, said that they would meet, meet grizzly ends. That, you know, in other words, he was kind of trying to protect his flank, but he really didn't do too much about addressing the issues within People's Temple, the People's Temple leadership itself on racial issues. When they went down to Jonestown, some of those issues were still there in the upper echelons of the leadership was mainly white. With that said, there were a number of committees and structures down in Jonestown which were led by blacks. And in the fields themselves, I mean, there, there was no differentiation between white and black in the uh, actual kind of construction, maintenance, agriculture, uh, infrastructure work going on within People's Temple itself. It was, it did have racial problems, but, um, but I don't think that could be considered like a, a racist organization. Was, was the People's Temple, were they like a known quantity among the civil rights movement? Like, did, did, I don't know, like SNCC or the SCLC or anybody else right. like know who they were? Or did they foster any relationships there or? Not really. I mean, the thing is, is that they viewed themselves uh, as kind of, you know, working on their own. Uh, so, you know, th there's some people who say that if People's Temple had stayed in Indianapolis, that they, that they would have become one of the churches that had, which would have become part of the civil rights movement that and would have really been powerful in that. In other words, you know, a lot of the organizations that belonged to the, the civil rights movement as strengths were the individual churches. And People's Temple right. had that potential. That didn't happen really because People's Temple saw itself as kind of an entity unto itself. And that also led to its, its sort of own sense of how things should be done. In other words, you know, Jim Jones thought he had the answers to kind of everything on this. Actually, as the church grew older and became more and more involved, revolving around Jim Jones himself, um, it became less, less and less connected with the community surrounding it. And that was also one of the things that led to its decision to immigrate. It said, you know, it turned interior, it turned within itself and said, you know, we can't do anything about what's going on in the United States. Therefore, we're going to provide a model by going off into another country and showing you guys how it's done. In one of the letters, um, they claim that uh, the church was facing government persecution in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Was that real or was there paranoia or was it a bit of both? Both. In Guyana, there were really three 
major efforts that, that the U.S. government was pushing against People's Temple on. One is one we've already mentioned with the, with the post office and the uh, Social Security. A second one was this, the Federal Communications Commission. The uh, People's Temple had ham radio licenses, amateur radio licenses, which, which is part of the network that allows ham radio operators around the world to talk to each other and have conversations with people of different cultures around the world. And, you know, one of the um, agreements that you make if you give a, get a ham radio license is that you don't do business. It's not supposed to be a business platform at all. It was just supposed to be sort of a, a hobby. People simply used their ham radio operations to conduct business. They, they did this because they were out in the middle of the jungle and there were no phone lines to get back and forth. There were, you know, they really didn't have much communication at all with the outside world. In other words, the thing that was attractive about Jonestown because of its isolation so that they could pretty much set up a colony under its own rules also meant that they didn't have the, the, the benefits of being connected with, with a communications network, so no telephone service. So they had to use the, the ham radio operations as a, um, as a substitute. So the critics of People's Temple started uh, bringing to the attention uh, to the attention of the Federal Communications Commission how often the temple was using the uh, its ham radio operations as a means to do business, and in fact, they they were, and they were doing things like uh, and they knew it. And so they would be speaking in code. Uh, they would go in and out of bands to. Um, to, you know, in other words, they would sort of run and hide different places on the radio band so that they couldn't be tracked uh, except amongst themselves. They were doing, they were taking sort of elusive measures. And so the Federal Communications Commission was threatening to cut them, cut them off. The Internal Revenue Service was also trying to, uh, was threatening their, um, uh, their tax status as a church. There was an investigation of that. And along the way, the customs agencies were stepping up inspections of materials that were going down to Guyana that were labeled People's Temple. A lot of this was as part of the campaign of the Temple's critics. They were trying to, to cripple um, Jonestown so as to bring it down so that the relatives would come back home. So you had these three or four various government agencies that were pushing against it, but also at the same time, we're talking about the mid to late 70s when there had been documented abuses uh, and reports of surveillance by the FBI and the CIA and everybody who was anybody, especially on the political left, thought that they were being tracked by the FBI and the CIA. It also makes for a lot better, you know, talking points when you're standing before your thousand people out there in the in the jungle, to say that you're being followed by the CIA rather than your local postal carrier. It just doesn't have the same panache, shall we say, <laughs> to say that the mailman is after you rather than it's a CIA plot. So it was a combination of both. 
There was, in fact, no, as far as we have been able to tell, and we've filed a couple of lawsuits along the way uh, in the course of, uh, of our own research, there was no CIA involvement in the operation, um, much less the deterioration of People's Temple, especially once the temple left um, San Francisco, there was no FBI um, investigation of it. Uh, they were been completely out of their jurisdiction. And uh, indeed, we have not learned of any FBI investigation of the temple even before it left San Francisco. Can I address the conspiracy issues in general? Yes, please. Okay. In the immediate aftermath of Jonestown, there are a number of conspiracies that rose as to how the people actually died. Uh, part of it was because there was such chaos in trying to figure out what had actually happened. Part of it was due to the fact that the body count kept rising. The initial count was 408 bodies, and then it went to 600 and something, and then it went to 780, and it took the whole week before they came to the final death toll of 918. It seemed very mysterious. The other thing that seems really, really, really mysterious and uh, is that it looked as though parents killed their children. Well, we all know that parents don't kill their children. Parents don't kill their children because children are the legacy of the parents, and the last thing that parents are going to do is to kill their children. And now that we've established that fact, now we have to find out what really happened. Oh, so they were trying to justify it after the... Okay, I see what you're saying. The Go fact ahead. of the matter is parents killed their children. Mm. And so all the conspiracy theories are based, this is my opinion, uh, all the conspiracy theories are based on a false premise. They, they are based upon something, uh, an, an assumption that is that, that doesn't hold water, that doesn't stand up to the facts. And, um, and the simplest explanation in this case is the best. Over the years, we have documented at least 23, I think 23 was the last count, conspiracy theories as to what really happened in Jonestown. It was a CIA plot. It was, Jim Jones was a rogue CIA agent. Jim Jones was a CIA agent who decided, who was acting at the behest of the CIA, <laughs> who decided to take the people down with him. Jonestown was an experimentation for AIDS. Jonestown was an experimentation for a neutron bomb. Jonestown was an experimentation station for a, for a germ warfare thing. It was the result of a, a Green Beret hit. It was blackwatched by the British. It was the Burnham government of, of uh, Guyana itself that decided that Jim Jones was too much of an embarrassment. You can go on and on and on. And none of the conspiracy theories have stood up to any test of time. At this point, I mean, we even know who Deep Throat was from Watergate. After 41 years from Jonestown, after Jonestown, you would think that if there was a conspiracy, that somebody in it would have been on their deathbed and decided they needed to make a confession. 
or that they would have been honked off at their boss and decided that they were going to tell all, or that they were going to make some money by publishing a book, or that they were getting divorced from, a, from their spouse and decided to spill everything that they knew about their spouse. None of that has happened. There is no documentation of any conspiracy. Here's part of the problem. Here's part of the problem. This is something that I really didn't appreciate myself until about a year or so ago. Um, one of the things that we have done uh, on the website is that we are uh, we have put up all of the uh, FBI serials as part of their investigation into into People's Temple uh, in the aftermath. It's called Rymer, which that was the code name standing for Ryan Murder. The the congressman who who was assassinated was Leo Ryan. So the operation was called uh, Rymer. And, um, you know, we put up uh, the first thousand serials that we put up, um, first thousand documents from the FBI included a lot of State Department kind of things. And it basically shows how, how completely at sea absolutely everyone was. I mean, as confused and, and upset and lost as the relatives were, in, in the United States when they heard that their families had died in Jonestown, it was completely matched by what was going on in, in Georgetown at the American Embassy. And, I mean, I mean you, you kind of consider, and you can see this coming through in the cables. You know, here's this embassy that has sent a congressman out with, a, with, a, uh, with an embassy representative to Jonestown and as I say, the communications between the two were very, very, very scanty. And in the course of a few days, you get kind of, you get the kind of thing of, okay, the congressman is, is on his way back. He's going to get on the plane at 3 o'clock this afternoon. Oh, his plane has been delayed for some reason. There's a, oh, there's a report coming from Port Kaituma, where this airstrip was, that there's been a shooting. The congressman has been shot. The, the congressman is dead. There... There are five other people that are dead, and, and there are people in Jonestown who are dead. There are 400 people who are dead. There are 600. There are people, the government wants to bury all these people in, in Jonestown. He doesn't want to let them out. The, the military is going to have to come in. Where are we going to put them? And all that's within the first three days. And this is an embassy that has a staff of maybe 15 people. This is, this is how a lot of the confusion starts. It's not disinformation it's not the kind of campaigns of uh, sort of uh, you know informational warfare that we see going on in modern political life these are people who are trying to do the best jobs that they can excuse me down in Guyana both the American Embassy and the State Department and the US military and all the people involved and in, uh, you know increasingly as time went on the, the the family members themselves trying to figure out what happened to their relatives and offering both, you know, outrage and uh, <laughs> including our family, I have to admit, and uh, but also assistance as much as possible. Largest loss of civilian life in American history up until 9-11. It seems like the signs, uh, I guess, that of Jones's uh, desire for control and mm. I guess megalomania were there from, uh, I guess, uh, early on. Was uh, was this always the plan? 
I guess for, for him, is it, do we know? Like, like, was it a, did he have, I don't know, good but, intentions at the beginning? Did he always intend to sort of establish uh, a little kingdom under himself? I think that the most interesting interview that could, for me, that I could ever do would be with someone who joined People's Temple as a holiness slash Pentecostal church in Indianapolis in the mid 1950s, who went to San Fr- who went to California with him, and saw the church as it as it changed a little bit, picked up more uh, a little less of a Christian message, more of a New Age message, started to reject Christianity except for the Pentecost aspect of uh, people living in community together, that it was a Christian organization that that soon became more of Jim Jones disparaging the Bible except when he needed it, and then eventually uh, declaring himself to be God. And then when they went down to Guyana, the sermons stopped altogether. There were no sermons at all. It was no longer a religious organization at all died in Guyana. But that, by its very definition, is an impossible interview to have because the people are dead. But how are you whiplashed through all those various changes? How do you make those kinds of compromises with yourself along the way? And the fact is, is that all of us do it all the time. All of us have those kinds of, of gradual changes along the way. You know, we used to uh, talk about how, how the United States changed in the first three or four years after 9-11, how it changed, how we had so many aspects of the American political culture that seemed completely antithetical to American character, how this could have happened, and it happened bit by bit. You know, none of it, it didn't all happen at once. And so... Jim Jones, you know, was a faith healer. And then he became, did he become convinced of his own powers? He sure talked as though he was convinced of his own powers. And more and more people believed that he had these powers. You know, he would, he would talk to them about saying, uh, in his sermons, he would say, I know that you're here for the healings, but I, you also need to hear the message too. And the message became less and less religious and more and more political, although couched in religious terms. And it just gradually became more and more rejecting a Christian message and picking up a a, a message of revolution, of doing things by any means necessary. And by the time that you end up in Guyana, you know, the United States is is, is essentially the enemy You've essentially, you know, your, your allies are the Soviet Union uh, and North Korea. You know, those are the people, uh, those are the countries of whom Jim Jones spoke most highly. And, uh, you know, the, the, especially down in Guyana, all the references to the United States are as a racist or imperialistic or uh, controlling nation that is setting up concentration camps for blacks. I mean, he's kind of making stuff up as, as he goes along. Um, all of this is, is a very, very, very gradual thing. Now, as for when 
people thought that there would be the mass suicides when this would happen. You know, there's no meeting that has been recorded or that anyone has, has talked about where there's no beginning point. It just seems like whenever they started talking about, about death, that it was, it already seemed to be an ongoing conversation. They didn't make arrangements to, to bring in the means of death, which is the cyanide, until earlier in 1978. And I don't remember the exact date. I believe, I believe it was the spring, but that's kind of a wide, you know, a wide three-month period. But it was about six to eight months ahead of the actual deaths. And with, as with many things in the life of People's Temple, uh, Jim Jones was kind of looking for an excuse to act. And so the arrival of the congressman provided him with that excuse. So uh, he was wanting to do that all along? Could you elaborate? No, 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 no. Not all along. I, I would, I would, there are people who say that Jim Jones, that his intention from the very beginning was to bring everybody down with him. I don't think that that's the case. I think that he eventually did see see uh, death. I mean, he was very, very, very uh, dark in his vision. He did talk about death an awful lot. He talked about, and it became kind of a conversation, it became kind of a almost offhand conversation of, you know, we could all die at any time. They were attacked, uh, you know, what he perceived as an attack, presented as an attack against the community in 1977. They were all going to be there uh, fighting the enemy but if the enemy looked like they were going to overwhelm them, then they were all going to die. And he talked about it in the context of other cultures had done it before, other people had done it before, they were standing for revolutionary suicide. So Jim Jones viewed, you know, sort of presented this to his followers as an act of revolutionary suicide. And it was the type of language that, the people of People's Temple knew because Huey Newton of the Black Panthers had coined the term revolutionary suicide. The problem was, for the people of Jonestown, was that Huey Newton had a very different definition of what revolutionary suicide meant. For the Black Panthers, revolutionary suicide was, if you stand up to the man in Oakland, California, if you stand up to the police, you're going to be shot down. When you go into this battle, you know you're going to be shot down. But there's going to be a brother or a sister behind you who picks up the banner that you've just dropped and will march forward for equality. And that person will be shot down. And the next person will be shot down. Eventually, someone's going to pick up that flag and walk to freedom. But all the people along the way who have died uh, have died as revolutionary suicides. Jim Jones adopted that rhetoric, but used it to, to describe essentially whatever he wanted it to mean that day. What, uh, you know, revolutionary, we were gonna commit revolutionary suicide because if the, if the uh, army of Guyana comes in here to find out what's going on, you know, we can't fight our black brothers. We would rather die. We would rather commit revolutionary suicide than do this. If we're invaded by the uh, US military, we would rather die by our own hand. We would rather commit revolutionary suicide and show the rest of the world what kind of racist imperialist the United States is. 
And in that way, you know, we will have made a mark. But, but this conversation is going on often enough that when the final day does come, and he says, now the time has come, people are inured to the concept of death and are, in fact, ready to die. In other words, the first time that they talked about all dying wasn't November 18th, 1978. You didn't have 900 people wake up on the morning of November 18th, 900, 1978, and look out the window and say, gee, it's a nice, bright, sunshiny day. I think I'll die today. That's not what happened at all. But when the time came, they accepted the, the orders of their leaders and what they thought was going on, what their leaders were telling them, uh, because their leaders were telling them, they're, they're going to bring people in here. They're going to kill us. They're going to kill our seniors. They're going to torture our babies. We can't let them find any of us alive here when they arrive. Why did That's, Jones want them to do this? Did he believe himself at that point? Did he think that such a display would discredit the U.S. government? What was his so, motive there? So Jim Jones, towards the end of his life, was very sick, physically sick. When he was visited by a doctor friend of his from San Francisco in, I think it was October, so like a month, maybe six weeks before the deaths, the doctor said, God, you look awful, Jim. What's the problem? And he said, how, how long have you been running this temperature? And he said, I've been running this temperature of more than 100 degrees for more than a month. And the doctor said, you know, you're going you're gonna to be dead by Christmas. And if you don't get to a hospital, you know, he said, I'm an urban doctor. The guy was from San Francisco. He said, I'm an urban doctor in North America. I have no idea what South American diseases are like, especially those in the jungle. But I do know that you're not going to live, with, you know, no human being could live with this kind of illness. And there are people who have said, you, you kind of consider Jim Jones as being the father of a family in the type of headline when you see, you know, every now and then in the paper you'll see, father kills family, then self. A family member, usually a father, who is so desperate in his own lack of ability to take care of his family anymore that he would, is going to commit suicide, but he doesn't think anyone else can take care of them either. And so the only way out that he can see is to take everybody with him. And he's been talking about this for so long. Jim Jones did have a death wish. Jim Jones talked about death over and over and over again. And he gradually wore people down. You know, it wasn't like a campaign of, I'm going to get these people to die. I'm going to get these people to do it. But they talked about it all the time. And he talked about it so much that, as I say, it was just kind of part of the general conversation. So he basically wanted everybody to go out with him, sort of, a, yes. uh, I guess, it was, a, I guess, an outgrowth of his megalomania. Yes. Hey, this is Hamish McKenzie. I'm one of the founders of Substack, which is the platform that hosts the Historically podcast and newsletter. And Historically is funded purely through subscriptions. So people like you can go and pay some money to get the podcast and some subscriber-only episodes and subscriber-only newsletters. And that will keep Historically totally independent and uncompromised. It's historically substack.com is what prompted congressman ryan to visit 
And what did he find out in the visit that frightened people at the temple? Leo Ryan was a congressman from uh, who, who represented a district on the San Francisco Peninsula. It wasn't San Francisco itself. It was a little bit south of San Francisco. And But a number of People's Temple members had from his district had joined People's Temple. One of the people who had joined People's Temple and who had died in a train accident in San Francisco kind of ahead of time, before everybody went down there, the member's father was a friend of Leo Ryan, and he didn't think that the guy had died in an accident. He thought that maybe there was something suspicious about it, you know, that the temple had killed him or something like that. Uh, went and talked to Leo Ryan about it. And so that put People's Temple on Leo Ryan's map. Then there were reports of uh, problems with People's Temple within California. And then there was also this group, the Concerned Relatives that I've talked about before. So they approached Leo Ryan as well. But there was also the uh, an affidavit that had been filed by a former member of People's Temple who left Jonestown in May of 1978, and who filed an affidavit that said, if members of the People's Temple feel like they're being threatened, that they would commit suicide rather than face the consequences of being investigated or being attacked. She described it in, in sort of apocalyptic terms. Leo Ryan was facing these various pressures and decided to, to ask for a congressional group to go down to investigate what was going on. And initially, he had a party of about three, four, maybe five people from Congress who were going to go down with him, which would have made it an official congressional inquiry. One by one, those members dropped off. And they said, this is not a good idea. This is, these are Americans who are living down there on their own. They're, we do have a State Department who's looking into them. We really don't have the authority to do it. And Leo Ryan decided to do it anyway. In my view... And this is an opinion not, not shared by, by many people, but I think Leo Ryan was trying to have it both ways. Either, and he can't have it both ways, either he believed that if the people in, in Jonestown would die at the order of their leader, if they felt threatened and that the threats would come from the government or the media or relatives, why did he go? Because it, doesn't he represent that threat? Doesn't he, by going into Jonestown with members of the concerned relatives and with the television crew accompanying him, doesn't that represent the elements of the real conspiracy that Jim Jones has been talking about for a while? Doesn't that represent the threat? Isn't that going to be the trigger? Then why would you do it? Why would you do it if you believed that that was true? If you didn't believe it, what's the point of going down? I'm not asking the question rhetorically. I do not know the answer to that question. I don't know why Leo Ryan went down. I know a lot of people have talked about Leo Ryan being kind of a publicity hound and looking for, you know, um, th that this is like one more thing that he's done, like some of the other things that he has done in his life to bring attention to things. But he really didn't have the authority, especially since the congressional delegation that he had tried to pull together had come down to one person and was therefore not an official congressional delegation. And when he went down there, he was kind of a bull in, the, in a china shop. He, he tried to make the best out of, a, out of the situation that he created. And he, you know, he went to the front door of the People's Temple headquarters in Georgetown and knocked on the door and said, you know, 
hi, I'm Leo Ryan, I'm the enemy, I'm just trying to come in and have a conversation. You know, so he, he did try to pass it off with humor and this kind of thing. They were listening to their own rhetoric. They viewed him as being a, a fascist representative of the imperialistic United States. Immediately afterwards, the Orion circles around the back side of the building and hops over the fence and comes in through the kitchen, through the back door into the kitchen. And kind of like, you know, I really just want to talk to you guys. What you just broken and entered this, these people's private property. You know, in some places you'd be shot by now, right? So this is the way that he sort of introduced himself. These, this is all leading up to him going out to Jonestown. Now, he did go to Jonestown. It wasn't sure that he was actually going to get in. I think that this is something that probably a few more people have sort of accepted as probably being the case. I, I think actually the, the answer to the, the, the somewhat rhetorical question that I asked a little bit earlier was, he really didn't intend to get into Jonestown. He didn't think he was going to get into Jonestown. He thought he was going to fly out to Jonestown with the concerned relatives, with the media, that he would get to the front gate of Jonestown, that they wouldn't let him in, and that he was going to stand there in front of the gates of Jonestown, kind of spread his arms and say, what do these people have to hide? I came down here in good faith. All I wanted was to have a conversation with them and they wouldn't let me in. What have they got to hide? I think that we need to do something about that. The evidence that I have for that belief is that Leo Ryan said he had a list of 20, 30, 40 people that, that he was supposed to interview with the idea that he could bring them out and take them back to Georgetown with them. In other words, um, all the people that their relatives had said were unhappy with, with Jonestown and that he was going to escort out. There was no room on the plane to take anyone out. Plane the was plane was full. And so, in other words, the plane that went out to Jonestown, every seat was taken by members of the media, by people who were, you know, by the relatives and by his staff. And in fact, if this plane had, if the plane had been bigger, they would have taken more. There were people who wanted to go out to Jonestown with Ryan who didn't go because the plane wasn't big enough. So wait, he was trying to get people to, who wanted to leave Jonestown at that moment, but there was no way to bring them out. When Correct. Went, Correct. That That's what he said, which leads to my belief that he never thought that he was going to get in, inside. So when he got inside, it was as much of a surprise to him as it was to anybody else. But the, and that's why things went so badly wrong because he didn't he didn't plan for this and everything just sort of. And, and in fact, Jim Jones didn't want the didn't want him coming in. He was about to feed into to Ryan's narrative. And there were people in Jonestown who said, "Jim, you're going to give this guy a public relations victory, doing everything that this guy wants." Let him come in. Let him talk to the people. Let him go around and see what this place is like. We know what this place is like. If you turn him away, you're just going to give ammunition to the bad guys. And it took him a while. It took several hours of negotiations between Jonestown and its kind of leadership and the temple attorneys who were down there and uh, Leo Ryan himself, his party, to actually get in. And in fact, 
because it took so long to get in, the one-day trip turned into a two-day trip because when the cameras did get in, it was too late that night to film. So they wanted to come back the next day to shoot you know, pictures of Jonestown and stuff. And so the one-day trip became a two-day trip. Otherwise, they would have just been in and out, no harm, no foul, goodbye, you know, the end. But as it turned out, everything was working against them. So Leo Ryan got in. And none of the people that he talked to wanted to come out, but there were other people who did. And oh my God, we've got like 20 people who want to come out. You know, okay, we're going to take, we're going to take you guys out, but we need an airplane. How are we going to get an airplane? The only communications they had was through the temples, was through Jonestown's radio room. Oh my the gosh. Radio, the ham radio that we were just talking about. So they're sitting there making arrangements with uh, Guyana Airways in Georgetown to fly an airplane out. And guess who's sitting there taking notes? You're kind of, you're, you're tipping your hand. Everybody, everybody in Jonestown knew what was going on because they're using the radio room. And he thought he and was so bulletproof that, because he was a U.S. congressman. And that's exactly what he said. Wow. That's exactly what he said. He said, you are under the protection of a congressman. Everything is going to be fine. You are under congressional protection. Play that was done about 15 years ago by, by a playwright named Lee Fondakowski, who lives there in Brooklyn. Uh, she was uh, uh, one of the writers on the, of the uh, Tectonic Project that did, um, uh, Tectonic uh, Theater Group that did uh, the Laramie uh, Project. Um, but she also did one on Jonestown. And, um, and it was a, a really, really wonderful play. I'm really sorry that it hasn't had more, uh, you know, showings and it, it it's it's shown in probably five or, or ten places by now but you know but it's one of these kinds of things that they had maybe 10 actors play the roles of 50 parts so people are changing their you know kind of their hats and their shirts to show that they're slipping into different roles and in talking with her at one point i said you know you ought to take the actor who's playing jim jones and give him one only one other person and that person would be the character of leo ryan because they have the same arrogance, they have the same sense of, of uh, kind of knowing what's best for every, everyone else, they have the same bluster, and the fact is that you had this clash between these two men, and that's how it ended up. I mean, this is actually very revealing because in none of the uh, mainstream media documentaries do we learn about all this Congressman Leo Ryan being so unprepared and his arrogance or anything. <laughs> right. It's a bit of a whitewash, you know, this brave congressman. He was concerned about his constituents and then he was just gunned down. On the yeah, I, I don't consider it yeah. a whitewash. I do. I do. It's kind of like, um, you know, is the best thing that Jimi Hendrix did for his career was to die. You know, I mean, it certainly does seem that the that Leo Ryan, in my view, would have been just a, you know, a congressman from California and gone through several terms and maybe try for a run for the Senate at some point. And at this point, he'd, he'd just be the, 50, the congressman from the 15th District of California uh, in 1978. Who was that? No one knows. Right. But that was yeah, before yeah. his martyrdom for democracy. huh? Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. The best thing that he did for his career was to be assassinated in <laughs> So I know there was a number of survivors. One was right. this basketball team playing basketball somewhere. But who are the other survivors who survived Jonestown? Okay. So we consider that there are 80 survivors. Mm -hmm. 
Um, they range from, I mean, without, without giving all the names. So there were a total of seven people who started off in Jonestown that day who were still in Jonestown at the end of the day. And they ranged from um, Tim Carter, Mike Carter, and Mike Prokes, who were sort of tasked with taking temple leadership, gave them some, uh, some of the temple's money, and said, you know, take this to the Soviet embassy in Georgetown and take these letters that, that pass along all of our bank accounts to the Soviet embassy. This is how we want, you know, we want you guys to survive. But when they walked out, there were people who were dying around them, right? Including Tim Carter uh, with his wife, saw his wife die. There were a couple people, there was a woman named Tyson Thrash who slept through it all. Hers was very interesting because yeah. she was an elderly lady, right? right? And she just... She slept through it. And then she woke up the next day and there are all these, you know, everyone around her is dead. And then there are three people who, uh, three black men who independently of each other decided not to participate in the deaths. There was an older man and then there were two, two younger men. So that's seven. Then there were 16 people who uh, left with Leo Ryan to go out to the airship to be flown back to uh, Georgetown and back to the United States. There were actually 17, uh, but one of them was, uh, one of those people was shot at the airstrip and we believe that she was probably, you know, not purposefully shot, uh, but there were 17 defectors. And actually then you have to cut it back to 16 because one of the, one of the defectors was, was actually, um, you know, a, a plant and that was Larry Layton. There were 11 Jonestown residents who had left earlier that day from Jonestown on, you know, what's referred to as the picnic. Um, there were a couple of, there were a number of people from People's Temple who were doing things in other places. They were on, they were on boats in the Caribbean. There was a woman who was uh, procuring medical supplies in Venezuela. There were other people who were on boats on the, on the Port Kaituma River picking up supplies. And then there were about six, about 60, no, I think that cuts it down to 50, about 50 people who were in Georgetown itself. And that includes like the administrative staff of People's Temple, people who were kind of uh, rotating in and out of between uh, Jonestown and Georgetown, spend some time in Jonestown, and then they would go to Georgetown to do procure supplies or other things like that. And as I say, there was a basketball team that was in Georgetown for the uh, for a national tournament. And there were also people there who were, who were there for medical appointments. And so that's how you end up with, uh, it, it's actually a total of 87 people. For a lot of these survivors, they were alone and much of their family died. How, how did they cope? What happened to them when they came back to the U.S. or if they came back to the U.S.? All of them came back to the U.S. A number of them in the years since have died. And, and there is a kind of a loose network of people who who've kind of come back together mm -hmm. uh who you know who attend various functions together um they go to the memorial services there's a, a memorial service every year at uh, oakland evergreen cemetery in oakland where there is a mass grave where about 409 people who are never identified or, or never claimed um, are buried so that memorial service is held every uh, November 18th, and um, former members and survivors go there. For a while, there were uh, various kind of 
reunions um, that you know that my wife and I helped organize along with a, a couple of other people down in San Diego. That kind of helped people get back together, and a lot of this stuff is done. You know, people are now friends with each other and 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 visit with each other all the time now. So it took a long time for people to reestablish their lives, find something else that they could do. They started from zero. You know, they had their their families had been completely destroyed. And you didn't, you couldn't really mention to anybody that, that you were a member of People Simple. Because of the stigma in society. Because of the stigma. Because of the stigma. And that, that extended to relatives too. Oh, sorry if, I, if this is a personal question, but your wife yeah. also lost relatives, right? Yes. My, uh, my wife and I, so she had two sisters who died in Jonestown and our nephew died in Jonestown too. Oh, our wow. Nephew, our nephew who's... Uh, who was actually sired by Jim Jones. When this happened, actually in, in the week that uh, following the, the deaths in Jonestown, my wife and I went out to Reno, Nevada, where my uh, uh, parents-in-law lived. And my father-in-law, who died at the age of 99 only about six weeks ago, delivered a sermon, which kind of became the rallying cry for a lot of people who were trying to pick up the pieces. Um, he, he was a Methodist minister, and he, he was really the first person to talk about the people of People's Temple, the, you know, the human beings who died in Jonestown. And my wife and I sort of took that as our own clarion call, you know, the, the research that we've done over the years. We were both reporters at the time, but uh, except, for, except for the emotional aspects of it, of course. Here we are 41 years later, and a lot of people have... Uh, a lot of people have come to peace with it, but there's still there is still a lot of stigma, and that stigma really did. I mean, I, like one of the ways that it manifested itself. This was about a year after the deaths in Jonestown. My father-in-law had written an article for a magazine about the people who died in Jonestown, and he um, it was published in a uh, a, a, a small national magazine, and on Thanksgiving. Uh, which was, you know, the first holiday uh, after the anniversary. Um, we were all at Thanksgiving dinner, and there was a telephone call that came in. And the woman at the other end of the line asked to speak to John Moore and said, is this John Moore, the Methodist minister? Is this John Moore, the Methodist minister who wrote the article for Christian Century? I mean, she wanted to be sure that she had the right John Moore. And she said, my daughter died in Jonestown. And you're the first person I've told. Aw. That's I mean, amazing. There, there was that kind of, of stigma. That for me is very heartbreaking because mm -hmm. it's like they've lost their community and now the new community has all sorts of preconceived were, notions about them. Correct. They were referred to as baby killers. Why? They were, they were uh, you know... There was a, um, there is a story uh, told by one of Jim Jones's sons, Jim Jones Jr., who was the first, he was adopted. He was the first black child to be adopted by a, couple, a white couple in Indiana. And he talks about being back in the United States, this is like two or three months after the deaths in Jonestown. And he has a job 
it's either in a car wash or or he's he's working as a you know in a parking garage or something like that. In other words, it's a fairly low level, fairly menial job. And you know, there's uh, while he's working one day, you know, there's a report that comes on the radio that says, um, you know, the people people simple. I mean, there's just a news item about the, about it. And his boss says something like, you know, those people in Jonestown, they got exactly what they deserved. You know, they shouldn't have followed this crazy man to start with. And Jim says to him, you know, in this city, where so many of the people from People's Temple were from, you probably should be careful about just saying something like this, because there may be people out here whom you know, who were members of People's Temple, or who knew people in People's Temple. And the guy said, I don't know any people like that. And he said, actually, you do. I'm Jim Jones's son. And the next words he heard were, you're fired. Oh my God, that is Jesus. Is that's there, cruel? There is a story. There, there is a guy who has written for our site, who often does, who often um, asks uh, if he does participate in interviews, asks that his name not be used mm-hmm. because I think it was on the Friday after, like less than a week after Jonestown, he he was. Um, he was a, a, a uh, he had been a former member of People's Temple. He had been a critic. He had had two relatives who died in Jonestown. He had a good job in San Francisco as a banker. He was kind. To, his name was known among the the uh, among the defectors and the apostates and the relatives and stuff like that. And I think it was Good Morning America or you know one of the, one of the morning talk shows. That, that flew him to New York to be on their program on the Friday after, uh, after that first week. He left San Francisco. He appeared on television on Friday. When he came back on Monday, he didn't have a job. Wow. In your theory, like, what made society turn so hostile against the survivors, in your opinion? It was as if it was infectious. Actually, we've experienced it a couple of times like that, you know, where, where someone close to you has died under sort of non, you know, it's, it's not someone who's died in, of old age in a hospital of cancer or heart attack or something like that, right? If there's, a, if there's someone who's, who dies in a car crash or, or who dies in a, you know, there's some people out there who just kind of like, oh my God, you know, there's, there's an infection. There's, a, there's, there's something that you carry with you as a, um, uh, you know, um, I've worked with a lot of people who have um, who, who've died, uh, a, a lot of it because of, of this work here, obviously. Um, and, you know, the whole thing of, of suicide, it's kind of like there's a stigma to it that, um, that a lot of people just can't get past. Uh, and I guess it's also frightening for them because this is something that's never happened in right. history and probably will never happen again. Right. Well, and if and if it can happen to quote unquote normal people or people like me, then exactly. it could have easily happened to me. And that's exactly. I think, that, I, 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 think, think that's one of the, I think that's one of the things that that we have tried to do with the website. Is try to try to say these were people like you. If you look at these people, if you look, if you look at their lives, if you read some of their stories, 
you'll say, hey, you know, one of the things that we have on our site with the on the biographical boxes that we have that show the names and the faces and the biographical data, there's also a place where people can leave remembrances. And a lot of the remembrances are by people who, who knew that person in people's temple or who who is a relative or something like that. But there are other people who come and say, hey, uh, this is the first time I've seen somebody who was who spells their name weirdly the same way I do. Or this person shares my birth date. Or this person looks like my grandfather. Every single time that that happens, there's a connection. There is a there. It, it's it's showing people these are these were um, normal people. These were people that you would uh, see in the grocery store. They're people just like you, and they came from all walks of life, just like people in your family. And if you can begin to identify with that, then they stop being the other. And that's what happens to members of these kinds of groups or to any other organization or, you know, cultural group or anything that people are, are, are frightened of or they're, they're not familiar with, they become the other. I think that one way that that has really manifested itself in more recent history is that the acceptance of gays and lesbians in American society, that the cultural shift in the people who accept gay and lesbians as human beings fully entitled to civil, political, and legal rights is because everybody knows someone who's gay. As more people become, you know, come out of the closet or as more people come out to their parents, especially, you know, you'll have example after example of that. It, it becomes accepted and they're no longer part of the other. But for people in people's temple, they are still the other. And since a lot of the survivors were African-American or Black, so <laughs> there must also be that additional barrier they're facing in their life already. The, the, you know, it's interesting, within the Black community, most of the, the, uh, the barriers that they face um, a lot of times are considering the people who survived to be foolish because they followed a white man. Oh, boy. Plus, you also have, and, and here's another thing that people ran into, some of the problems that people ran into was, you know, they came back, some of the people who came back, um, came back to people who were still believing in people simple and Jim Jones. They're coming back to family members. One of the saddest examples was this woman who left with the congressman, her name was Monica Bagby. She has since died. She was 18 years old. She was black. I think, I'm going to say, I think she was the only black person to come out with Leo Ryan, but I'm not 100% sure on that. I, I, I can't think of who else was black, maybe one other person. But her decision to come out, you know, she joined with Vernon Gosney. Those were the first two people to approach Ryan with the, you know, with the request to leave with him. She went to the Port Kaituma airstrip with the congressman. In addition to the five people who were killed, there were about 10 people who were injured, uh, who were wounded, some of them fairly severely. Monica Bagby was one of them. 
she was in the hospital. She went back to Los Angeles when she, you know, when she recovered from her wounds. She walked in the door and her mother said, why didn't you die with the others? Oh, my God. This is in the aftermath of like after everybody has kind of gotten through the fever, the adrenaline rush of what was happening that day when people were making decisions or were they even make, you know, in, in the proper frame of mind to be making decisions, right? Where they just, was everybody just kind of caught up in the hysteria and the drama and the adrenaline and the rush of everything that was going on a month later. And she walks in the door and her mother wonders why she's, why she didn't die. What happened after that, if I may ask? Monica decided to leave. Um, and actually she ended up having a fairly difficult life the rest of her life and she died she died a young woman. Aw. That's, I mean, these are like things that no one hears about because I right. guess no one wants to humanize the exactly. dead. Yeah. There are questions that I still have, which which can never be answered. Uh, that would be a good, that'd be very interesting. So can you give us a few examples? I can, give you, I can give you a couple of examples. Actually, one example would be how much of what Jim Jones was saying, did people actually believe? When they were in San Francisco, so there are a lot of people who, you know, I have transcribed enough of Jim Jones's sermons and put the transcripts and MP3s, by the way, are online on our site. You can hear Jim Jones's voice, you can hear sermons, you can, you know, read transcripts of the sermons. They're, they're all on our site. I've transcribed enough that Sometimes when he's talking, I can move my lips along with the dialogue. I know exactly what he's going to say next. And I've only done, oh, wow. like, I've only done like 100 sermons. He did thousands. Can you imagine being in these things over and over and over again and listening to It's like listening to, you know, to a top 40 single for the thousandth time. You know, you know the lyrics. Oh, my God. Judy's Turn to Cry <laughs> from, by Leslie Gore is not going to have that many ramifications after hearing it for the thousandth time, even though you may have really loved it the first 200 times you heard it. And, and there, were, there are stories of people kind of like figuring out ways to get out of going to, to meetings and services and stuff like that because they knew what it was going to be like. They knew that they were, what the dialogue was. But why did they, how much of it did, did they actually believe? And there are also people who said, yeah, 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 you know what? Sitting in services was kind of the price that we paid. Because look at all the other stuff that we were doing. We were helping the people of San Francisco. We were bringing, we were helping people who didn't have a thing. You know, people who were um, elderly and black and poor to actually find some dignity within San Francisco. And also to give them a home in Guyana. I mean, Guyana was considered the promised land. It was billed as the promised land. And, you know, when you consider that after Indiana and California, the demographics show that the next eight or ten states that had the most natives who died in Guyana were all from the Confederate South. And a lot of them were blacks. And, and one example I'll give you is the state of Louisiana. There were 51 people from Louisiana who died in Guyana. 50 of them were black. And almost every single one of them was over 55 years of age. 
these were people who had come to California after the war, after World War II, either following their husbands or they were the male or, uh, you know, they were, they were part of the, the great migration out of the South. A lot of it went north, but a lot of it went west. And these were people who had been in San Francisco for a number of years and who's, uh, especially for the women, you know, their, their partners, had, their husbands had died, and they were essentially living on their own. And these are the people that People's Temple really spoke to. And they provided the services to these people. And when they went to Guyana, they went back to the South in spades. I mean, I was raised in the South, and I've been to Jonestown, and Jonestown is, is Louisiana on steroids you know, with huge jungles, massive, you know, massive humidity, massive bugs. <laughs> Everything about rural Louisiana uh, that I've seen, I saw, you know, tripled in Guyana. So these people were, were going home and they had a place where they could stay and live and they felt like they were part of a larger community. But how much did these people, when they listened to Jim Jones talk, how much did they believe what he said? when he started talking about concentration camps in the United States, when he started talking about the Ku Klux Klan walking through the streets of Chicago, when he started talking about, you know, various things that Carter was doing against black people in, uh, in South Africa and stuff like that. How much of that did they believe? I mean, obviously there's a distancing aspect that Jones wants to do to show them this is the only place for you to be. And in fact, sometimes he's very specific with that. You want to go back to the States? You want to go back to a place where young men are shot in the streets? You want to go back to a place where women are raped? And the thing is, is they witness this themselves already anyway. They know, you know, the best lies are ones that are based on truth, right? If he had said, you want to go back to the States where there are Lithuanian bats that are are that live in every household now that come down in, into your hair at night, they would have dismissed him. But if he talks about the racist police, and if he talks about the, the 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 people who can't get enough to eat, they've been there. They understand that. And and the fact that he's exaggerating it, I mean, at what point do you say, oh, man, this dude's off the went off the rails here? Right, but he's hitting on real material problems he's, and material he's needs. On real material problems, and he's using it. To, but then you take my sisters-in-law, who are white. Um, they come from a middle-class family. They're both educated. They're both in the leadership group. What are they thinking when Jim Jones says this stuff? You know, is it the end justifies the means that it's okay to say this? Um, do they ever push back on it? There are some examples of people saying, you know, Jim, you're wrong on this. It's not on, it's not on anything political. It's kind of like, you know, um, at one point, Jim wanted to do something. You know, he said, he said we need to do this to the road into Jonestown. And, and there was a, a memo that one of his advisors wrote back and said, that's not gonna, it's just not gonna happen, Jim. That's not gonna work. You're, you're arguing against the laws of physics, you know. <laughs> what was this thing? Oh, I, I forget the exact, I think it was like, you know, we're, we're going to make sure that this road never floods again or something like that. And he says, it's a little spot, <laughs> you know, um, you know, things like that. I mean, I mean, you get pushed back on things like that, but you would never get 
Jim, you know what? And when you say that the Ku Klux Klan has, uh, is, is walking the streets of uh, New York, you know, we didn't see that. We didn't see that come through the, through the wire services here. I, I mean, there is a truth to that in that there are cities where the KKK is pretty strong. Like, Correct. So it's not a complete lie. So I understand. Correct. Correct. Yeah, it's more likely it to have been in Indiana than, than in New York. Yeah. Correct. But, you know, and he, and he would talk about things that were going on in places where people came from. Right. So, you know, you want to go back home. This is what, this is what you're going to be going back home to. Right. That brings up something that uh, I've been wondering about for a while, which is if you could give us a little bit of insight into the, the methods of social con- control that uh, Jones employed over his followers, both how people were kept in line. So, you know, People's Temple was an organization that uh, was kind of like living outside of, you know, increasingly lived outside of um, American society, even while they were still living in the United States. So they still had, um, you know, they would rather, and, and they justified it like this, they would say, you know, we're taking care of the problems here rather than turning them over to the police because um, we don't trust the police. You know, they're racist and we're, you know, we're just a community. We're, we're trying to create a community and we realize that within a community we have to have our own policing. And so these are the types of things that we are going to do as our own policing. In Guyana, for example, if you like violated the rules, you were placed on the learn, what was called the learning crew. And the learning crew was the group that did most of the, the, the really awful stuff, like cleaning the ditches and cleaning the latrines, really hard manual physical labor. And you would do it, uh, when you did it, you had to um, jog between the jobs. You couldn't just walk between the jobs. So you, you were essentially kind of on a chain gang, right? Um, and, in, and in fact, there were two, two guys who, um, the only survivor of which tells the story about uh, literally being chained to, to this one guy for a while. A fellow miscreant, the two of them had tried to escape Jonestown. They were caught and they said, okay, you, you're so, you're so, you know, you want to be together so much. And they were sort of chained together and they were made to, to, to work in the fields together doing really awful jobs until, you know, the chains were left on long enough that one of them had an infected ankle Marceline Jones, Jim Jones's wife, intervened, got the medical attention, and, um, and you know, one of them survived and the other one died. Uh, there was what was called the box, which is, um, was it sensory deprivation? I mean, I think people could hear uh, when you were put in the box. It was basically, you know, sort of inside a refrigerator-sized box, maybe, maybe a little bit bigger, that, that was in Jonestown. And, you know, that was sort of the prison for a couple of days. You were uh, in solitary. You didn't have any contact with anybody on the outside. People would bring you food. And as far as I know, it didn't last for more than a couple of days at a time. There was what was called, Jim sort of used, well, for lack of a better word, terror, to try to intimidate people. There's, there's a tape that we have in which two kids have really messed up. And so he takes them out, he orders them, a guard, to kind of take them out and place them at the edge of the community where the, where the cats will get them, where the big cats will get them. 
Cats um, as in uh, like lions, like like that like, 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 like panthers and stuff. Osses, osses. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Like, um, that. Later on in the conversation, they come back and they are uh, the kids are crying and the guard is and the guard is really upset. And the guard said, "There's a cat out there." They, there, there was a cat out there, and Alma came, and Jim said, there was? He didn't really think there was. He was just using it as a, you know, as a cudgel, right, to kind of scare these kids, completely scare these kids. And, you know, was it, was it that, I mean, who knows, it might have been a rustling in the, in the leaves by a snake or something like that, but they thought it was a cat because they'd been told there were cats out there, right? That's how that kind of, that's how that kind of terror works. But also, you know, but part of the problem, this is one of the problems that we saw, we saw in Jonestown, is that the, it was done by kind of executive fiat. It was whatever Jim Jones said. I mean, we talked a little earlier about Jim Jones saying what revolutionary suicide was, you know, what, uh, any of a number of things. It was all kind of under the definition of, of Jim Jones. But there also, there was no kind of sense of consistency. There was this one night in which you know, people are getting privileges and people are also getting punishments. You know, at one point, this one woman says, I saw Tommy sneak into the, um, into the kitchen and steal some sugar and, 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 and eat some sugar. And Jim, so, Jim says, thank you, sister, for telling us that. Um, um, you know, this is the kind of, uh, of revolutionary solidarity we need to have. Tommy, get up here. Tommy, look, this is a community. We all have to be together. You're doing stuff selfishly. You know, everyone gets the same amount of stuff. You're supposed to, um, you know, you're not entitled to have any more sugar than anyone else. I'm going to put you on learning for three days. And by the way, sister, thank you for pointing this out to me. Tommy, you know, this we're going live on you because you haven't done anything like this before. But, you know, this is what's going to happen. Then five minutes later, another woman gets up and says, you know, Mike Touche, um, I saw him take the uh, the caterpillar out into the jungle, and and he was supposed to be working and knocking down trees and stuff. And he and he, you know, he wasn't working for the community that day. He took the the caterpillar far enough away, he thought no one could see him, and it turned off the ignition, and, and he went to sleep. And Jim says to her, "You goddamn, what the hell do you think you're doing?" Mike Touche was the guy that built this place. Mike Touche has been working his ass off while you've been sitting on your scrawny butt in front of your house, just, just sitting there and watching flowers grow. My God, get out of my sight, woman. All right, what's the difference between the two? Certainly there's no standard. I mean, they're both talking about, you know, quote unquote, counter-revolutionary acts. They're both talking about things that seem to affect the community as a whole. You have no idea how Jim is going to respond when something comes up. And at some point, he says in one of the tapes, I'm doing that on purpose. You never know what it is, how I'm going to behave, how I'm going to react to a situation. Keeps people off balance. He's keeping people off balance. And if that... It, and I consider that to be social control at its height. And I can't call you right back.
and that makes 20 minutes or so. <laughs> um, <laughs> a lot of the people who criticize People Simple and Jim Jones and say that he's a madman and say that he does all these kinds of things, I have to tell you, the largest number of emails I got uh, probably in the past five years uh, from a and as a, a, a discordant course, because there are people who don't agree on very many other things, from former members of People's Temple, was when Donald Trump said, I could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and I wouldn't lose a single voter. I got email after email after email from people who said, I just heard Jim Jones. What do you think of that? Uh, uh, I, uh, do you think they have a point to it? <laughs> um, uh, Personally, yes. Okay. Why don't the people who blast Jim Jones see the same thing? Why don't they, all the things that they criticize about Jim Jones, why don't they see that in Donald Trump? You know, haven't we learned any lessons from Jonestown? If you don't know that basic lesson about, you know, if you follow the leader on every single thing that they say, um, you're going to get in trouble. If you're surrendering your own integrity to someone who isn't even consistent in, in, in his proclamations from hour to hour, how can you, how dare you criticize Jim Jones? Essentially, is what it comes down to. How dare you criticize Jim Jones? Because the person that you're following is doing the exact same thing only his finger is on the nuclear button. I think there's a lot of truth to that because, I mean, I feel like, um, I guess, I don't know if it's cultural or innate, but there is a lot of people who will just obey any order. <laughs> right, exactly. You know, about how complicated all this is. And if, if nothing else, I hope that some of the complications about... Um, about People's Temple, Jim Jones, Jonestown, its membership, you know, all the, all the nuances, all the complications, all the humanness of its members and of its leaders, you know, comes through. There is a tape that was made in Jonestown. It was from November 1978. Um, and you can tell because they're already talking about the congressman coming and what are they going to do and blah, blah, blah. It's a, a general community meeting, but right in the middle of the meeting, Jim Jones interrupts what's going on and he says, hey, you two boys, you two boys back there, come up here. And they're coming forward and they know that they're in trouble because they're crying when they get up there. And Jim Jones says, you know, open your hand. Look, look, look what's in your hand. That's a fly. That's a fly. That, that's a bug. That, and you've pulled off his wings. And now the bug is dead. He said, you know, that bug, that bug was living just a few minutes ago, and you caught him, and you pulled off his wings, and now he's dead. Life is precious, my children. We need to honor and respect all life. And he doesn't need to punish them. They're just weeping. And the crowd is weeping. And over this bug that, that they've just pulled the wings off. And two weeks later, he orders the deaths of 900 people. I can't reconcile that. I can't either. I mean, 
That's wild. Wow, that's wild. Honestly, uh, oh. You know, if you go over your notes and you find out that there's something that I said that was kind of confusing or that you want more information on or that we stopped halfway or you have other questions, you know, I'm willing to do this again. Okay, thank you so much. Um, We really appreciate this because honestly, like I saw two documentaries Mm -hmm. and they all seem to like repeat the same set of facts. There's nothing new about that. Like they don't teach you things like these little details that make it very astounding. And it seems like they want to close the mind as opposed to raise questions and raise debate. And that's, you know, and I think that's, and, and to be honest, that's why there is such a reluctance from a lot of people to participate in these programs. And that includes, to be honest, my wife. I mean, because, for example, there was a guy who was uh, an ind- independent film producer, and he did a hell of a lot of research. I mean, he read all of Becky's books, and he, he read, I mean, actually, he contacted me and said, what hasn't been covered on the story of People's Temple? And I said, the role of the women at People's Temple. And he said, absolutely fabulous. I'm going to make a documentary about that. And he came out and he interviewed, you know, any number of survivors. And he talked about the, you know, because Jim Jones was kind of at the top of the leadership. But, you know, the, the next level was basically women, right? Women who'd kind of crashed to the glass ceiling. And that included both of my sisters-in-law, but it included a number of other women as well. The guy had researched and he'd gone through all these books. And, and when he arrived to, to interview Becky, you know, he had so many little post-it flags sticking out of the books that they would barely close in the interview for hours and hours and hours. He pulled together all this footage and then he sold it to A&E and then they fired him as a producer and then they had the show that they wanted to do. And so my wife came across looking like a complete apologist for People's Temple because it was the same old story. And actually it was called The Women Behind the Massacre. Holy God, that's that's borderline defamatory there. It's right there. It's right there. It was uh, on A&E about a year and a half ago. You can find that online. And my wife is featured throughout it. Here's that little story kind of along the lines. There was a woman from a network, but it was a woman from a network, and she called and she said, we're going to do something completely different on People's Temple. We know that all the other people have done this, but we're going to do something completely different. And I said, yeah, 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 you'll forgive me if I've heard this story before. No, 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 no. I've got assurances from the top. It's going to be different. I gave her an interview. Stephen Jones gave her an interview. Jim, John Cobb gave her an interview. Laura, I mean, I just, you know, she got some really stellar interviews from people that don't often get interviews, mainly on this woman's representations. And she was really happy. She said, oh, man, this really kind of nailed it. And then she called me about six months later, and she was in tears. And she said, I'm ready to quit my job. I said, don't. She said, and she said, they took what I did and turned it into something completely different. She said, it's all about the deaths. It's nothing about any of the stuff that I interviewed you, everybody on. And she said, everything that you told me that they were gonna do, do and that I didn't believe, they did. And I feel like I should follow my own sword. And I said, just, just take this as a lesson into the future. But this is why a lot of people, you really, really, really have to have to persuade to uh, to uh, cooperate with you because they've been burned. They've been burned not once but ten or fifteen times. And you know oh, to, get, to get my wife to do it, 
I don't know. You know, my wife hasn't done a single one since the A&E interview. Corporate media. Okay. By the way, uh, this is a small plug for ourselves, but right. we are funded only by our listeners, so we have right. no one censoring us. But um, right. yeah, corporate media often has these like ways where they always try to push into the establishment narrative, and right. I've seen them do this to a thousand stories. But it's like they have to keep it in that box, and anything outside their box is considered not credible or something like that. Well, that's not, and it really but, frustrates me because this, their, their insistence on look, you know, looking at the stuff through, I, I don't know, like turning it into an exercise of just like cheap voyeurism, really right. like avoid, you know, their approach, like the true crime approach to stuff. Right. right. I, it just avoids like, I, I think the most interesting aspects uh, of, of stuff like this, just the underlying issues, like how, this all happened, and it, I don't know, that's intensely frustrating to me. Well, it is. Well, it's frustrating to us, too, and especially since, you know, there are so many other stories, and you don't have to, uh, you do have to cover the, the deaths. You do have to mention that the people, that there were people who died, but there's so much more to the story, and for the same thing to be over and over and over again, just really, really gets frustrating for the people who are out there who have, who have very, very, very powerful stories to tell about their lives. Okay, now you got me going. Go ahead. There, there was a, a producer who called and said, um, you know, I want to do a story in Jonestown that no one else has done. And I said, okay, here's a story. And it was, was it TV or radio? I forget. Anyway, he was going to do an hour long documentary. And he was going to, I said, you know, 918 people is a statistic. Three people is a tragedy, mm -hmm. right? Go interview people from this one family the survivors of this one family. You can get people who were, uh, who were in Jonestown, people who were out of Jonestown, people who survived Jonestown and people who, who didn't, you know, so you can tell the stories about the people who didn't, but you can tell kind of the story of people simple through one family, right? There's your hook. The story of this huge mass movement that, that traversed two continents and, you know, all the states and, and, and 25 years and all this kind of stuff. And you can teach all the lessons that you have through this one family. Because the family didn't even agree with each other on what, you know, what the lessons of Jonestown were. They were really split, but they were all willing to participate in this guy's documentary. And he, he pulled it together. He pulled together, you know, scores of hours of interviews and stuff, and he couldn't find a single place to sell it. Why? I think it's because he didn't focus enough on the deaths. He didn't focus enough on the madness of Jim Jones. He didn't focus enough upon the, the brainwashed sheep of the of members of People's Temple. It also brings this irony is that there are, like, not too long ago, where the media, like, said, oh, Iraq has weapons of mass destruction. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't see it's so it's like there's a lack of self-awareness and so it's like easy to otherize them and not even see yourself and I think it's more yeah. useful when there is that self-awareness. Yeah, it, it it really um it really does help. And you know the thing is so at this point you're dealing with kind of a tough crowd in dealing with the, the members of People's Simple. There was a documentary that came out here sort of the summarizes all of it. For the, for the survivors. There was a documentary that came out about 
15 years ago, which you, if you haven't seen, you, you, uh, you would, should probably see. It's called um, Jonestown, The Life and Death of People's Temple. I think I've seen that one. That was one that was... a dra- dramatization and a documentary? No. Oh, no. boy. Okay. Don't get me started on reenactments. <laughs> okay, okay. I don't uh, know which one I'm Sorry. Uh, no, we feel pretty strongly about that, too. Um, this was done for the American Experience on PBS. Um, although it was released in the theaters first, and it was shortlisted for for an Oscar for the, but it didn't get on the final cut. But anyway, it was by uh, Stanley Nelson, who's done documentaries on Emmett Till and uh, jazz, and you know he's kind of the, the the guy who does a lot of the documentaries for PBS on sort of black culture and black life. And you know he built it as as you know he was going to spend at least a third of it talking about the survivors, he didn't, but it was all, you know, interviews and, and, and actually it was, a, it was a pretty good look at it. And, and at the end of it, and this is kind of the point of it, uh, telling you this, at the end of it, one of the guys who was interviewed and who's, you know, a, a, a tough guy said, um, it was the best thing that's ever been done on People's Temple and I'm really disappointed. That's the kind of hurdle that any kind of documentarian has to make, has to get over, and increasingly so, and it's kind of like every single time a, a crummy one comes forward, is put out there, it makes it that much harder for the next guys to come along and say, hey, this one's gonna be different. I, I guess a lot of it is the need for sensationalized, for, oh. and the fact that they're trying to fit it into these, like, between commercial sound bites. Correct, correct. That is not made for complex thought. Correct. Yep. Um, well, we really enjoyed having you on, and we'll try our best not to, uh, not to, <laughs> to mess it do, up. <laughs> yes, we'll try our best, and okay. thank you so much. You're quite um, welcome. As I say, you know, if you if you want to do it again, uh, you know, let me know, and uh, and we can set something else up. Oh, absolutely. We. Thanks definitely. so much. This is thank, thank you so much. This okay. is one of the best. You're quite okay. Bye bye. Have a great day. You too. Music for this show is done by Rectech. You can find him on SoundCloud and on Spotify. W-R-E-C-K-T-E-C-H. And thank you for listening to our show.